out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of A.R. Kane, because I recently spoke to Rudy Tambala. To find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff, this is the interview so I won't bore you anymore. So after several minutes of casual chat, which was fascinating, which gets edited out, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years and those early musical awakenings. Anyway, Rudy, tell us more, tell us now. I don't think I had a musical awakening. I, I, I may have had one, but I've forgotten it, so it wasn't that profound if it did happen. Um, but, I mean, similar to you, you know, I grew up in the 70s, listening to all of the kind of glam pop. Yes. Glam rock. But I think the split was, uh, um, being we were from, like, immigrant families, we had, like, a black cultural strain running through it. So, you know, when you watch Top of the Pop, we always kind of sat there, you know, with bated breath, waiting for the soul train moment, where you would get the Temptations or the Shy Lights or the Detroit spinners or something yes. like that so Barry so we, White yeah well not so much Barry White to be honest um we were more into um dance and soul and jazz funk um so there, there was all of the, the pop music but we really loved the soul music as well as it was called called in those days I think it might be called R&B these days yeah I was very confused with R&B when suddenly it happened recently well 10 yeah. years ago well yeah R&B I mean R&B is originally evolved into rock and roll didn't it and it was rhythm and blues yes um, you know from the 1940s and 50s and then um, it got adopted as a, as a term for soul music in the probably 90s i think 80s and 90s that's become r&b yes but but yeah so so yeah my i mean my musical moments i suppose would would have been kind of being in small kind of community center discos and things listening to um, the sound of philadelphia and things like that um, some of the, the disco stuff, um, Crystal World, Crystal Glass, and just that, and some of the dub reggae that would be played in the, by the sound systems at the end of the evening. Yes. So, so yeah, so similar, but a different strain in there, I guess, as well. I was a bit too young for the wonderful world of punk rock. Did that sort of come into your consciousness at any particular time, or was it yes. a bit late? So I'm a couple of years older than you. I was born in 1962. Um, so um, punk rock was very, very prevalent, actually. Um, it was interesting because when it came around, um, <laughs> I remember we all kind of took our flared trousers, turned them inside out, stitched the line down them so that they were drain pipes, cut off the excess and had drain pipe trousers overnight kind of thing, all shaved our heads and um, kind of started dressing differently and acting a little bit more, even more arrogantly and um, horribly than we had been as teenagers before that. So, I mean, 76, I was 14. That's a very impressionable age. But the punk thing really in, in East London and West London, where we used to hang out, it, the punk thing really kind of crossed over um, with the dance scene. I think that's really where the new romantic thing came out. So there was, there was definitely a big crossover there. Yes. Yeah, and very, very influential on, on ARK sound. Yeah, absolutely. And did you, I mean, as we, because in, in sort of you would have been that age where you'd have really had that leaving school probably in the late 70s. Did you leave at 16 or did you stay on? And I left go, at 18, actually, um, and went to university. Right. So you had a grant, you had freedom, you had sort of a new world. We had a full grant. And yeah, it was absolutely 
those were amazing times, I suppose. For, for you got a check for something ridiculously high, didn't you? Never yeah. seen such money. <laughs> yeah, it was it, it was a large amount of money. Um, and then you lived on lived on a camper, so you lived in a complete fantasy world. And it was it was really, I mean, it's lovely. I can't knock it at all. I look at you know my daughter now is at university and having to save up all this money to put her through it and they're going to come out with thousands of debt regardless it's just like crazy yes it's uh, my brother who studied in the 70s i mean he saved money i mean to be honest he was a bit of an accountant at the time so he was always gonna he was always going to sort of come back come out of it and the bizarre thing i know without going into it but you could also sign on during the sort of holidays couldn't you you could claim unemployment benefit in, yeah. in sort of you know, even easter as well as you know christmas and yeah i mean you were, there was there was a there was a lot of um social financial support in those days there was a lot what did you study at university biochemistry right my god you were going to go for it weren't you yeah but i found out that i wasn't actually that good at biochemistry after a couple of years because i mean i just didn't have the interest or the application for that kind of level of um, research it started to bore me. I liked the big ideas, but I didn't really like, you know, pets. <laughs> you know, 0.5 millilitres of this and extract that. And I found it really, really tedious and boring. But that's the nut, that's the crux of it, really. It's putting in that really, really hard Decision, work. yes. Yeah. So when you went to university, did you start sort of experiencing that wonderful world of just endless gig nights and disco nights? And it wasn't it wasn't so bold as it is now, you know, it's like when people go to university now, it's all laid on. I mean, we had a union bar, which was a fucking dive. Yeah, it was a shanty shack, you know, prefab almost. And it had very, very cheap booze. I probably went there every night. And occasionally there will be a disco. <laughs> and, 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 and two or three times a year, there might be a band come down. I saw Sweet, interestingly, in 1980. They weren't, Blimey. They weren't as good in 1980. They didn't dress glam anymore, but they were still a good band. Yes. Um, what what university did you go to? It was Royal Holloway College, University of London. So right. Near Windsor. Yeah. And were your parents at all, or did you have any musical members of the family who sort of were turning you on to different sounds? Yeah, all my family are musical in one way or another, mostly consuming music. My mum is a massive classical fan, so we had um, Bach and... Um, the Viennese waltzes playing constantly and she loved she also loved anything that was kind of a slightly exotic sounding like soca and reggae and um, ska and stuff like that so there was a lot of music in the house my god that's so cool I have have three older brothers as well and they were relentless clubbers my oldest brother was in a sound system so he brought home a lot of like reggae and dub records and then my second older brother was really into more the soul jazz funk scene so he brought home, home a lot of records and we just used to sit there and play them over and over again yes so, yeah, this so. is this is what we do when we when yeah. we're young we consume it well also getting hold of these things was quite tricky and they sometimes required weeks or sort of months of saving some money to buy a record yeah gonna... my, my brother spent practically all their money on clothes and records so every saturday afternoon they would go out and they'll come back from the west end and they would have some shrink wrapped gem that went yeah. on the decks and you weren't allowed to touch it. Oh but god, it was, no. But it, but it was it was amazing actually. There was there was always music and all my friends loved music. Um my musical change taste changed when I got to university, interestingly, because I was exposed to I suppose what you might call white middle class uh, musical interests, because I was kind of black working class. Um so the white middle class was very, very different. There was a lot of rock music 
um, you know, like Zeppelin and Yes and Genesis and all this kind of stuff, which I liked. I really, really, I mean, not so much, not so much Zeppelin, but I, I like the prog stuff. Yes. Probably, probably is reflective in our music to a certain extent in some of the kind of ambientness and complexity. That's quite interesting um, in that in that sense that I suppose your degree would have put you into that world of nerdiness because my brother who I just mentioned is seven years older and he he was his period was the it was the prog rock period of you know sweet not sweet Jesus not sweet raise that um, yes Genesis Wishbone Ash Balky James Harvest the solo worker Rick Wakeman and the few sort of Steve Howe albums as well as Black Sabbath and Deep Purple's early albums um, don't forget and, Pink Floyd. Yes. Which is more 60s and 70s, I suppose. That I think he, he he quite liked the early stuff, like Umba Gumba, and got very excited when you could listen to some, some I think, someone walking from one speaker to the other in stereo. I think, oh, and Tubular Bells. Jesus, everyone had Tubular Bells, didn't they? Yeah, well, we just did a cover version of um, Grandchester Meadows, which I think is on Umba Gumba. Right. Um, we just did a cover version to play live last weekend. You know, that was really good fun. Yes. Never, never, never thought of done a, doing a cover version of a Pink Floyd song. But. So that's kind of slightly surprising in the 80s, because by then, prog rock was kind of embarrassing. And uh, I mean, Roger Dean posters had all been sort of recycled or just thrown in landfill. But but how come you didn't sort of suddenly embrace that post-punk? Well, uh, I did at the, at the same time. That was part of it. So there were these, so two of my best friends went on to form a band called Kitchens of Distinction. Oh, my God, uh, Patrick. Uh, so it wasn't Patrick, interestingly, it was Dan and Julian, because they were at the same university as me. Oh. And they were my best mates. Um, but Patrick, obviously, yeah, was in the band. Um, but when, when I was at, um, at uni, I was kind of like their roadie. Dan and Julian had a band, and they had um, a bass player who wasn't Patrick, and they used to do covers of rock songs, like, I don't know, Spirit of Radio and... <laughs> You know, um, Classic uh, rock, Bastille, Bastille Day. Oh that, my that, God! Even that, better. I, I love that one. So I got I got introduced to all of this rock music, and I just hung out, helping with the drums and stuff, um, but didn't actually play. But I slowly picked up the guitar from Julian and started to learn from it. But at the same time as all of that stuff, which was stuff that they would have come with, there was a um, there was a kind of a um, an undercurrent of things that we also liked, which were kind of a bit wonky, but the same. So we, we all liked the Velvet Underground, for instance. Um, and we kind of all quite liked 60s psychedelia, English and American psychedelia. Right. Stuff like that. So there was a, there was a crossover there. And I think also at that age, about 18, we were starting to experiment with psychedelic drugs and stuff. Yes, I'm this sure is true. Start, I'm sure they start a lot earlier now, but that's when we started. <laughs> so we kind of, anything that kind of, was in that zone. And if you were in the 80s, the only real psychedelia was 60s. Whereas now we've got layers and layers and layers of it, you know, from the whole rave scene and stuff. So you kind of got into a lot of 60s music. But I remember um, Julian really getting into Joy Division. And so we listened to a lot of Joy Division and that kind of took us on a, on a, off a tangent. And then slowly kind of Joy Division went into listening to the Cocktail Twins and, you know, so and all these kinds of things in the Smiths and so on. So all of that kind of post-punk new wave stuff. Yes, I know. And then, and then some of the gothier stuff as well, probably. Did you get into kind of the club scene? There was like, was it Alice in Wonderland and um, that kind of new Paisley kind of slightly West Coast 
birdsy kind of vibe as well. No, no, not not really. When when it came around to clubbing, I mean, I I would go back to London most weekends from, from university, and they had what we called warehouse parties, which later became known as house parties, but they were literally in abandoned warehouses, and that would have been people like a really really young Pete Tong DJing and people like right that. and playing you know classic um, dance music, you know, kind of free house and kind of jazz funk and stuff like that did you start to kind of embrace the other sort of side of the early 80s that period of 83 84 you know things like that cool I suppose jazz funk fusion I'm thinking of like not the acid jazz scene no I suppose it was what it was it was people like working week and I suppose before that you had Sade and people there was this kind of quite cool dance scene that started to develop there there was there was a there was a kind of a a kind of yeah just before the acid jazz scene there was that kind of almost cocktail jazz stuff yes even everything, but the girl did some jazz tracks on their on their Eden album and things like that. And it was it was really nice, but it wasn't for me. It wasn't a scene. They were records you listened to or stuff that was on the radio. Aspire to the to being on the face. Yeah, <laughs> it was all very cool, wasn't it? Really. So then, why, when did you make that decision that you wanted to suddenly not just be a punter, but to be part of a band? So um, I think. Um, so my schoolmate from when we were eight years old was Alex, and we always shared music and we argued about it constantly. Um, he he was my because my, uh, my background was more soul, jazz, funk with a sprinkling of reggae and rock, and his was more kind of like dub and reggae with a sprinkling of jazz, funk. Right. So we, so we went out clubbing together, but we crossed over to different scenes. Um, but then when we got into that kind of feverish consumption of something new, which was probably around the early 80s when I mean, we went to a show to go and see, um, I was just speaking about Tracy Fawn and Ben Watt. Right. Before, they were, before they were together, the Marine Girls. The Marine Girls. Um, I remember seeing them at Kingston Poly in like 1981. And that's, I think that was when we started to move into a different zone about thinking and talking about music in a different way and going out and seeing bands rather than going clubbing. Um, and that, I think that was a bit of a shift for us. And then the turning point, I think, was we both saw Cocteau Twins on, on the tube on TV and were blown away by what we were seeing. Just the, the use of technology was the, was the thing that was so humorous and so obvious. So they didn't have a drummer. They had a tape machine playing behind them. Yes. We, we both, it both kind of tweaked our funny button, but also at the same time, the sound was different. They look different, you know. Liz's voice was extraordinary. You know, um, you know, Simon Raymond had those great big chords that he played on the bass, which was, you know, I guess from Peter Hook, really, but you know, it sounded amazing to us. Because unless you listen to like jazz, you didn't hear that style of playing. Yeah. And um, and um, then and then, you know, Robin's guitar. I remember we 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 saw that and we decided we were gonna start a band that that evening. You know, on the telephone, right. we went round and we started playing on Alex's battered old acoustic guitar, and we couldn't play anything. We were saying, "How do we get that sound that you got? Can't get it out of this acoustic guitar." So we went down to Denmark Street in the West End, London, and we just went into a shop and just said, "Cocteau Twins, how do you get that sound?" This bloke went, "Oh, you want one of those and one of those and one of those, mate." So we bought them. <laughs> we, bought, we bought an electric guitar. We bought a distortion pedal. We bought a digital delay. 
and we bought a Roland drum machine. Just like that, you went. That's it. My God, that was that was quite brilliant, though, wasn't it? I mean, it was quite handy. The person in the shop knew what to buy, but um, yeah, I mean, a lot of these people that work in these shops know music inside out, don't they? they yes, at least but be, but to be on the zeitgeist is always quite impressive as well, because you know, some people might have just been still wanting to hear the kind of opening riff to Focus or yeah. Stay Away to Heaven, but no, he was there. Yeah. Really, I mean, that's and that's the funny thing going into those stores. You always heard people playing these acne old rock. <laughs> riffs and I remember we would go in there we would just turn everything on full blast and play feedback and get chucked out really quickly <laughs> <laughs> yes and then sort of as the 80s progressed yeah, I mean excuse it... me, I just got this spam caller keeps on calling me oh well uh, there you go it's nice to be wanted isn't it but, uh, um, <laughs> did you sort of feel that you were starting to be part of that kind of zeitgeist you know that kind of musical zeitgeist of the 80s because because one thing I've noticed that there were so many different scenes but also the kind of wave of music that started to appear was quite colossal you know and anybody yeah. could do anything so you had the I think, I think there was definitely this feeling that anyone could do anything and that came from the punk era that DIY uh, mentality and we didn't feel, and also, like I say, I'm seeing we don't need a drummer, we just need a drum machine or a tape machine, you know, and and being kind of almost naive, so naive that it seemed arrogant that we just couldn't believe that we could fail because we had ideas and we had a lot of music in, in us. Yes. But, um, but we were very ignorant of the scene because what we didn't know is there was a thing called the indie scene. So remember, we played a gig supporting the Kitchens of Distinction. I think it might have been our first live show. In um in just off Oxford Street, and um we played this show, and this couple came up to us afterwards, and we didn't know they were producers, and I said, "Wow, that was fantastic! It was, wasn't expecting that. It was really indie." <laughs> because this woman who was speaking to me was American, I thought she meant music from Indianapolis. I was thinking, "What? What music from Indianapolis sounds like?" I didn't know she meant independent record music. That's how ignorant we were, um, you know. But you know, it's different things, isn't it? For me, it's always been about sound. Yes. Sound and rhythm, I suppose. But, um, you know, if you heard Vinnie Riley playing guitar or like, um, I'm in love with a German film star through the Echoplex or, yes. or the Cure even, you know, um, some of their songs, you, the Cotto Twin sound was already there. It already existed. But the way that Robin did it was different. And that, was, and that captured our imagination in a way that nothing else had really. It was just like this effortless wave of, sound and noise yes but um but in terms of a scene i don't know if there ever really was a scene i, I mean i've no idea there was just a lot of music around i suppose there was labels weren't there there was a kind of from anybody from creation to glass records to yeah you on you know obviously there was rough trade and the smiths kind of relationship and one little indian so obviously you were sort of ticking all those boxes and 4ad you know as it as yeah, a well, 4ad of... was yeah, 4AD was definitely a label which had an identity, largely from Cocteau Twins and Vaughan Oliver and then Ivo's being the maestro behind it. Um, and it had a certain aesthetic, which once you got into, you just wanted to buy everything that came out, even if you didn't like it. And there were some bands on the label which had fantastic artwork from 23 Envelope and B23. But the music wasn't that great. I didn't care because I wanted the artwork, you know, which is another side of it. Yes. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, in retrospect, it's easy to package things up, which is kind of what we're doing now, in a sense. But, you know, there was, like, the Smiths, the Cocteau Twins, and New Order. And they were, like, the three styles, if you like. You know, you've got your 
your space cadets out there, then you've got your bed bedsit people, and then you've Angst. got your and then you've got your fucking in your face lads you know, <laughs> that just want to get smashed and dance, you know. Um, but you know, simulate trying to simulate all of that. Um, but people tended to be in one camp or another. Yeah, it was a very tribal time. I mean, now you would just wonder why everyone had to sort of, you had to one, like one thing or the other, but you couldn't sort of cross over, whereas I couldn't at the time like, I suppose, a lot of electronic stuff like, you know, Depeche Mode. But now I think, oh, God, actually, they were quite good. But then I associated them with a scene which I'd also projected stuff onto that I thought, no, I'm, I'm just definitely, that's not my scene at all. That's just... Yeah, that's interesting. It's like the first actual vinyl that I bought first record I bought was the Human League um, travel log which was their second album um, and it's because I'd really got into the new romantic thing and so I loved you know all of that electronic music you know I loved Japan I loved Human League um, Visage and I was really into all of that just that precision that beautiful sound and it sounded so futuristic and it all related back to Kraftwerk and Bowie yes. I obviously you know, probably like you I probably was I was a big Bowie fan Bowie was what we put on before we went out every Saturday, Friday and Saturday night. Oh, which album? Changes One. Right. Classic. That was my yeah. first My first uh, album was that compilation. Yeah. It was just like, God, oh, that's just so many songs on there, which are just out of this world from John and Only Dancing to Darwin yeah. Dogs to Suffragette yeah. City. It was just, it was something. Yeah. We, we, we'd be getting dressed up, putting on a little bit of slack because that was what you did in those days. And they had Bowie on, we'd be doing shots of whatever was going around, <laughs> special brew, and then go out and just like feel fantastic and alive. You know, yes, it's, it's I can't really imagine a special brew making you feel like that. That's that's like you try drinking a can of special brew really quickly. <laughs> it's like it's like having a large whiskey. Yeah. Oh God, eight percent of I know it's, it's disgusting. It tastes like fairy liquid, but it it was cheap and it got the job done <laughs> yeah I, I associate it with travelers and crusties actually and uh you know but if we kind of, kept on it we would have become crusties you would have been on <laughs> you would have been in a bus in some lay by looking no, for stonehenge special brew was very much a uh, part of the kind of the black culture for teenagers before red stripe before super brew there was special brew and it was a, a bit of a macho kind of right yes eight percent of yeah god that's disgusting so when you got the fir your first single when you're sad did that this was on one little indian did this all it seemed to be coming together incredibly quickly at this stage um it, it didn't feel quick for us it wasn't anywhere quick enough but um yeah we did a we did a demo for those producers who came to their gig and they they just happened to be um it just was ray and tan shulman and they were working with one little indian um and producing some Producing their album, which was like Uncarved Block um, or Flux of Pink Indians. And um, he sent it to them and, and they said, Oh, we want to see them play. And we didn't have a band. So, so we threw together a band. So, my sister Maggie, who I'm still working with, and um, a couple of schoolmates. And we went into a rehearsal room. Um, I think Dan from the Kitchen's Extinction drummed for us. Yeah. And um, went to a rehearsal room and they came along. And, one of those typical kind of apocryphal stories, which I even believe myself, where you know Derek from Wallet Linden said, "Oh, that was fucking shit. Let's make a record." Kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> it was. It was very much like that. But it took ages to do the record, get the record out. I mean, in reality, I didn't really have a record label. They had a lot of ideas and teepees in their gardens and all these crusty hippie 
punk anarchists. Oh, God, yeah, you would have had Mick Farron probably somewhere down the line. And um, I don't know, perhaps not Mick Mick Farron. He was in the... um, Pink Fairies. Pink Fairies, yes. Yeah, that's that's different. Pink Indians is a different thing. Pink Indians is very much on the crass scene. It comes to 80s anarcho-punks, Dardaists. if you want my honest truth, bunch of fucking wankers. But <laughs> you know, uh, they didn't live. They didn't live. They didn't. Live, they didn't walk the walks. Put it that way. Um, <laughs> um, they're all they're all very very successful middle class businessmen now. Um, but um, yeah, so that single. I mean, it was it was a I mean, it was massive for us because we had huge expectations, but we didn't realise how hard it was for most bands. And it was really easy for us, but we didn't know anything different until it's no, as long as it kept rolling, it would seem normal. It's when it stopped rolling that you notice shit. Other bad, other people we know who are starting bands, you know, they're having real difficulties. What's their problem? It's really easy. But then when it stopped being easy, you realize, ah, we were kind of lucky. Yeah. Right time. I think that yeah. was the that was the joy of that period and probably the 90s. There was sort of gatekeepers, weren't there? We had the music press. We had people like John Peel, Janice Long, Kid Jensen. Definitely. And, and things did sort of get going. So you didn't feel like, well, what's the point? We, we're still playing in front of our friends, family, and anybody we can emotionally blackmail to see us. You know, you suddenly got people wanting to discover you, which is like, oh, that's nice for you. That's yeah, nice. I mean, it, but it was nice for a small number. You know, um, we sat, we got our first single from one, from one little Indian when you're sad and um, Derek said to us go and sit outside Radio 1 and wait until John Peel comes out that was marketing <laughs> so we did we sat outside Radio 1 in the rain and waited, in, waited for a couple of hours until John Peel came out they said he always comes out of that building walks down that road to his wherever he plays and so we sat sat down there just Oxford Circus and he came out and we ran after him freaked him out a little bit I think he, he did think he was going to get mugged no doubt about it, but we just gave him a record. He went, I'll oh, stick it on top, you know, do stack of records. And that night he played it. Amazing. There yeah, you go. That, that's your marketing amazing. budget. It was it was amazing because I mean I I've spent, you know, probably the last, well, probably from when I was about 16 listening to John Peel's shows religiously, because he you never knew what you were going to get. You never knew what the next record would be. It'd be like you too, then Misty and Roots, then John Cooper Clark, and then something else. Often, you know, it's just like everything was good though. It was all even good. If it, even if he didn't like it, it was bloody good because it it, just, he, he just had his spirit behind him. Well, it was the, I suppose he narrated it and it was just an interesting thing. So that period when I, I suppose I used to record every night the John Peel show for 45 minutes of my trusty TDK D90 cassette. Yeah. Just as, because it was too, you know, when you listen to new stuff, it's just too much on one, the first listen. You needed to listen to it a few times. So it was around that point where you had, you know, Ivor Cutler, yeah, Daft Bluggy, then you had Augustus Pablo, then you had the Bundu Boys, then the Smiths, then the Four, you know, and and all these bands every night that you just went, oh, I need to listen to that again and work yeah. out which one I really like. But yeah, but it, I would I would go out and buy a record based on just one song. But, oh god, yeah, we all one off like Delta Five, the like English post punk band, you know, just like beautiful two bass players, amazing things, and then you know. Um, new age hipsters and just like stuff that was so off the wall but he basically you know collated that yes put it together curated it should i say but and, he um, was he was always good at finding the great track on that album and the rest of the album sometimes a bit mm, wish I'd but you wonder how he had the time yes because it was how like did he do it? 
the second track on side two that he found, but the rest which of the album... Which meant he had dropped the needle all over it to find something that was interesting. Yes, but then d- during that period, we not only had the Bundu Boys, who we all loved, but there was also, was there the electro compilations that came out from Morgan Khan? I just wondered if that kind of technology was starting to filter into your kind of consciousness. Well, uh, we wasn't really that aware. I mean, we were lucky in that we discovered the drum machine and then the guy who produced our first single, Ray Shulman, he was in, um, is it Gentle Giant? Oh my God, who, Gentle who, Giant. Who, I, who I, I didn't know about at all because they didn't really, they didn't become like Genesis here, but I think they were really big in America and Canada um, and Japan. <laughs> um, but he produced us and he knew technology and as well as doing all the music production. So he, he could, no, he grew up with the Moog synthesizers, the modular synths and all that, and he, and he knew all the technology. Plus, on top of that, when we went to the studio, he had samplers, he had drum machines. Right. That proper ones, not like our little tin pots. And so he, our first experience was we played guitars, we're into dub effects, so we had like space echoes and stuff, but he had all the drum machines and the samplers and the keyboards. So he introduced us to all of that technology. So that was just that was normal for us. Yes. What we didn't realise is that most bands hadn't come across that technology. They didn't know it even existed. You know, My God. I mean, a sampler was a post-production tool in those days. It wasn't a musical instrument, for instance. Yes. I just didn't know. Gentle Giant had such a massive impact on sort of that musical landscape. Yeah, so, I mean, Ray, he produced us. Um, he produced the Sundays, our first album. Um, he produced quite a lot of bands. He produced Bjork birthday party i mean not birthday party they did birthday didn't they um sugar cubes sugar cubes um, yes. so he oversaw a lot of things that were going on um and was and was very influential yes i suppose it's a bit like the famous dale griffith really wasn't it who used to do all the john peel sessions from mop the hoop i think he hated all the bands but had to do it and most people always said oh it was horrible we just didn't like dale at all and he hated us (laughs) (laughs) right right ray was a lovely person to work with and his wife tan she wasn't the producer but she would sit there and she when it was right she would smile and just go yep got it and you knew that she was completely 100 on the ball Fantastic. She, she, That's she, such she, a nice she, she relationship. Would what, she would tell you what was cool and what wasn't cool. That yes. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> and she must have listened to some real dodgy stuff in the 70s. Yeah, yeah. I expect she probably did. I think she, she was a bit of a rock chick herself. Yes. Well, it, it helps if you marry a rock guitarist, I suppose. But look, then 4AD come and get you. And Robin Guthrie produces the next recording, doesn't he? The next session. Yeah, so we couldn't get any traction with um, One at Linden. As I said, their marketing budget was us going up to John Peel, and then we didn't have any more budget for any more singles. And by then, we'd probably written 30 um, songs. We were dying to get going because we were really loving the experience of like, wow, this is, this is what we were built for, you know, to, to play music. And so in the end, we had a bit of a bust up with Derek at One at Linden. And he, at the beginning, he said, oh, you're going to end up on 4OG anyway. So we just said, well, right, let's go and speak to 4OG. So we said, <laughs> So we did the Lolita demo and um, sent it over to Ivo. And Ivo said, yeah, it's great. So we went and spoke to him and he said, you know, what do you want to do? And it's like, can we get Robin Guthrie to do it? <laughs> you know, he was God to us. Yes. And, went, and they said, oh, we'll ask him. And So we did a show, uh, I think it's at the ICA, and Robin and Liz came along. And after the show, Robin said, yeah, I'll do your next single. I thought, oh, my fucking God. 
<laughs> the big time is there, isn't it? Actually. So, was your first? Was the first album I? Was that the the one, or was no, it? The... No, we, we we left for AD after the Mars record debacle. Um, there was a big legal falling out on who owns what, um, and we we had done our next single with for AD, um, but we never did. We never. T- Produced it. We sent a, we sent a demo of it to Rough Trade, and Rough Trade signed us. We did a couple of singles, and then we did sixty nine. Um, that was our first LP. That was a, so. Before that, pump up the volume. Was that God? Actually, is that what? What was the story behind that? Oh, that was a that was a funny one because we were hanging out with Ray, and Ray was also working with um, Adrian Sherwood and helping with production on um, some of the dub reggae stuff that Adrian was doing on New Sounds and Tackhead and African Head Charge and all of that. But they got in with um, Doug Wimbiss and Keith Blanc, who were the rhythm section for the Sugar Hill Gang. And because we were kind of getting quite popular now and we were on 4AD, we, we knew Adrian because he was a local lad from, from East London as well. We hung out with him a little bit and we said, you know, would you like to produce a dance track? He said, yeah, I'll produce an AR Kane dance track, but I want to get the Sugar Hill Gang guys to be the rhythm section on it. And they were the hottest rhythm section in the world at the time. So we could not believe our luck. Yes. So we went to Ivor and we told him what we, what our plan was for the next single. And uh, it wasn't going to be the lead, it was going to be a dance track. We wanted to move into that area. And he said, yeah, I don't really want you to do it with the Sugar Hill Gang. That's a bit obvious. I don't know what he meant by that. He said, it's a bit obvious. It wasn't obvious to us. It was fucking amazing. But he said, I've got a band called um, Colorbox. And they haven't done anything for a couple of years. And, you know, this might kind of bring them out of their lethargy kind of thing. Um, and so we put us together with Martin um, from Colourbox. Yes. Um, the other guy, Stephen, wasn't around. I'm not sure where he was. I think he might have been a bit of a bender at the time. But, um, so we got together with Martin and we just started playing around with ideas. And um, he brought in an ambient piano piece that he wanted to do, which was very Harold. Harold Bud kind of stuff, and we brought in Annie Tina, which we'd done on a four-track demo. So we said, right, let's start on Annie Tina first. So we did that, and he brought. So we, we kind of the track was pretty much finished, but he just kind of brought in these really big lush drums and put those over it, and then <laughs> he he put on his ambient piano piece, and we said, what the fuck are we going to do with this? <laughs> so he went away. He said, oh, I've got a dance thing as well, and he went away and came up with this dance rhythm, which basically. A, just a really, really simple kind of like 808 beat. Those kind of famous volume bongo tom-tom drums. And then we started playing around with that and it started to catch fire really, really quickly. And that's when they kicked us out of the studio. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't know what was going on. I mean, they were, they, they were, they'd been around for a long time. But it wasn't, it wasn't a good scene really, to be honest, because, you know, we all did it together and then legally they tried to screw us over and say we didn't own it and, this kind of stuff so we fell out with 4AD over that and that's why we left yes cheesy crazy did you ever get anything sorted out from that kind of kick up um well they tried to basically write us out of the picture so i mean ivo's thing was you should be lucky you should be grateful it's your first time in the studio second time in the studio these guys have been around for years you know they should they should get all the accreditation for it. I was like, well, people that should get the accreditation the people that worked on it is my opinion yes uh, i mean i mean you know, so so it was quite bitter and um, it was it wasn't a good split and Ivo said to me basically unless you sign this contract which basically gives us fuck all um I won't put out your, lead, your next single which is the one that took you off trace I just told you fuck off 
that was the end of that. That was the end of 4AD. Blimey. Cheesy, crazy. It's a tricky world. But then you had dear old uh, Jeff. Jeff from Rough Trade came and saved the day. Well, Jeff Travis, Jeff, yeah. (laughs) It's funny because, yeah, Jeff... Jeff knew which side his bread was buttered on, you know, because we were moving serious units and we were getting, we were in the press every single week. It wasn't really a hard call for him to sign us, to be honest. And that's not me being arrogant, it's just a fact. Even when we we weren't doing anything, we were in the press. It was one of those things because we were quite an unusual looking and sounding band. Um, So Jeff just immediately went, yeah, let's do an album. And I mean, uh, yeah, we got on really well with Jeff and Jeanette, who looked after us, and Chris Stoner did the PR and publicity. The three main characters, um, and yeah, I mean, basically, he said, How do you want to make this album? And we said, well, We don't want to go into another studio again because we find them a little bit oppressive. So, you just give us an advance, we'll build a studio in Alex's basement. That's what we did. We built a studio and started recording the album. Yes, this is this is good. Did you then have kind of because this is where the kind of the rough trade moment starts to go terribly wrong, doesn't it, with the, their business model? How did that kind of... Well, that, was in- a, that was a few years in, actually. Um, so in 88, we did the 69 album. In 89, we did the I album, um, which was like a double LP, which was mad. Um, and then it kind of went quiet for a couple of years. I built a studio um, on, on the proceeds and started working and kind of doing less arcane and working more on, on Hark Records, which is my little record label, and I signed up some bands. And then in the background, all around that, Rough Trade started going down the pan. And it's basically just really, really badly managed company. Yes. A huge, a huge amount of theft from the warehouse. Um, and it's just, you know, they didn't have their books in order, didn't have their house in order, and you know, it grew quickly. And to a certain extent, its growth was fueled by the Mars record, as was a lot of the indie world at that time. The Mars record kind of opened up new doors. It was the first independent number one, independently distributed number one. The first, um, so it's Rough Trade's first number one, if you like, and it was 4AD's first number one. And it changed the, it changed the game for a lot of people. It was a bit like the, when that Adele record came out, not on the same scale, but when Adele did that album, it kind of injected a boost into the industry. Yes. A new dimension. Um, but I think that all of that money, all of the changes and the kind of the slightly cooperative hippie ideals all started to go out the window. And I think there was a lot of friction. There would have been a lot of friction. Yeah. But then you went back on One Little in- Indian, didn't you? For- oh. No, no, no. We didn't, we didn't go back on One Little Indian. We went to, um, went to America, David Burns' invitation, and met, met David and his label manager, Yale. And we signed a deal to, put, to do an album with Luaka Bop in America. Yes. We, never went, we never went back to one at Linden. But during that process, um, Rough Trade went into administration and um, one, they owed a lot of money to making records with a pressing plant. Making owned or was in association with one at Linden. They were... Brian Bonner from Making and One Little Indian, Derek, they were all tied together. And they basically said, we'll write off your debts if we can have everything. So they took the entire catalogue and we weren't, we, we should have been given our catalogue back basically. Um, so that's still, un, that's still under dispute. Um, but yeah, they took the entire catalogue for a penny and um, we never had a, a say in it. What I recently discovered was that our contract with Rough Trade was not in perpetuity and the catalogue actually reverted to us. Um, 
that's that's still being sorted out. Yes, I would imagine that's going to be. Is that exciting to sort of be able to? Well, yes, because I've I've got um, people that are going to reissue, you know, lovingly, all of our catalogue, um, and so I am excited. So that will happen next year. Yes. Um, God, that it's, just, it's just sat on the shelf and gathered dust. It's not been exploited. It's not been marketed. It's not been used for anything really. It's just been sitting there, and you know, so I'm having it back. <laughs> so, so, so as we were trucking into the '90s, and then suddenly the John Major years. Did you at this stage? Was this when you decided to to put the band on hold? So I think um, the juice we ran out of juice between between um, me and Alex. It just kind of like it kind of dried up. We did we did one final album for Luaka Bop, um, which was it wasn't it didn't have the same feeling. We knew we knew that something had gone. We could, probably could have worked through that. But I decided it, and also Alex had moved to California. And so I moved out there to work with him. But I didn't really like it that much, to be, to be honest. I didn't, I didn't really do California. It's a, a great place to visit, not a great, America is not a great place for me to live. Um, uh, and I think that I had kids come in at the same time. And it's like, mm, do I really want them to grow up here? I don't think so. And now I'm pleased I made that decision. Yes. Um, but, um, but yeah, so that the relationship between me and Alex, the creative relationship kind of dried up. So I just thought, well, I want to go and do something else. I went back to England and obviously Maggie had been working in ARK from the beginning, doing backing vocals and some lead vocals and so on. So I just said, well, this is this is an easy fit. Me and Maggie, why don't we just make a little album together? So we did an, we did a, an album for Virgin, the Monica Sufi, and then we did one for... Um, Secret Agent Records, a guy called Guy Sermon. Yes. Um, and we did another album for him. And then we just kind of pooled about a bit, really. And then I just thought, you know what? It's time to just grow the family properly. So I, opt- I opted out of the music industry pretty much wholesale and just thought, right, I'm going to get a computer. I'm going to teach myself some new skills and I'm going to start working. I'm going to do a proper job. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so was that from the sort of mid, late Mid-nin- 90s? Mid-, mid to late 90s, yeah. Right. I never completely stopped doing music. I've always had a little studio set up at home and I tinkered. But it wasn't until 2015 that I started to kind of inject energy back into it properly. Started doing shows again and doing new recordings and so on. Yes. God, this this does happen, doesn't it? I, you, you, this is a great, you know, this is a story that I've heard once or twice where people just thought, you know, we've been in this band for a long time. I've fallen out with everyone the, you know, the industry, the business hasn't been good and we've got no money. So I've had enough of it. I'm just going to go and get a job and do other things. So, yeah. yes, yeah, it I does mean, ha- I, yeah, it, it, it does happen. And it's like, and also it's like I, I was still doing music and playing some little shows and stuff. But I just thought in order to make this you know, financially viable, I'm going to have to do a lot more work on the music industry, which means it means I'm going to take me away from home. And I had two small kids and, that, and it was that dad decision. It's like mm, probably not the best way to bring up your kids if you're not around ever. No, um, it never. So, it, it, it's not a good story, is it? It never finishes well. Yeah. So then, when you got back and you were, were working with your sister and the guitarist Andy Taylor, is this the Andy Taylor? No, what from Duran Duran? <laughs> no, it's not. Um, <laughs> Andy Taylor. This is because this is many years later. It's like Andy Taylor lived two doors down from me. 
and he was my daughter's best friend. Right. That shows the age difference. Um, and he was a young lad, and it just one one. I think it was one evening he came round for dinner and just picked up the guitar and started singing and playing. I went, oh my fucking God, come on then, <laughs> love it. <laughs> and so we decided to do, do some concerts together. We did like mini European tour. And then we thought, well, let's just make an album. So we did it, we played as AR Kane. But then when it came around to doing the album, didn't feel quite right doing it at that time as AR Kane. I didn't feel like I'd really earned that to do that without Alex. Yes. I went out as Jubal, um, but it's about seven years on since then now, and I've pretty much achieved the AR Kane status. So probably the next recording will be AR Kane. Because you did quite a few singles, Thinking Sweet and Quiet Sun Slips yeah. Over, which yeah, were, and, and, which came out. And um, yeah, well, the problem for us is that we were planning to put them out, do the PR and the press, and do the do the concerts, and then pandemic came along. Yes, it just it just went flat. And there was there's no way of actually doing anything with it. So it kind of it, I would say it's a major flop. Um it 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 washed its own back, as they say, and washed its own face. Um, but it should have been, it's uh, in my opinion, it's a very good album, which in my opinion is worth little because I actually made it. Um, but um, yeah, so I kind of put that one down to experience, really. There's not really much you can do about that. No, that came out. Was that DNA Cowboys, which was DNA kind of... Cowboys, yeah. Yeah. So that was that was it was a fun album to make and it was a really creative time. It happened very, very quickly. Um, but yeah, so I don't know if I'll do another Jubal record. The next recording will probably be as AR came. So does has is it the case that Alex is kind of happy for you to just take the baton of the of the name and just say, look, just do what you want? Um, don't really know. I mean, when I said to him that we we're playing live, do you want to come and join us? He says, No, but good luck to you, kind of thing. Said, right. That's that. Yeah, so he's not, he doesn't do music anymore. Um, I'm not quite sure what he does. I think he might have gone back into advertising. Yes. Is it, is it you know, because it's like I mentioned right at the beginning, it's interesting that with a lot of the people that I've been interviewing, they did their thing and then went, oh, well, never mind. And then decades later, people have come back and went, my God, this is really amazing. You know, we really appreciate it even more now. Have you started to find more followers because you have such amazing critical acclaim don't you i mean everyone's been kind of you know influenced by ar kane yeah but we're very much a musician's band i think um we don't have a huge following um people that, that do like our kane tend to be other musicians right or, or producers or somebody on the music scene they're real music lovers it's not it's not pop music as such um so i don't know what numbers are but there is there's always been interest and there's at the moment there's a lot of um label interest which is interesting because it's like going back to the 80s again suddenly it's like oh would you like <laughs> we did a, did a show on saturday and afterwards a couple of people said to me would you like a record deal it's just like oh this is so fucking funny it's like, <laughs> i'm not i'm not 20 years old anymore <laughs> but all, it's interesting how many labels there are now that are just curating a lot of bands from the 80s there's tiny tiny global productions i think they're called and it's like oh god your roster is just like you know really good musicians who've done the sort of stuff in the 80s got done over a bit and then said look if you want to do any more albums you know i'd love to put you out on our roster you know we've got a great kind of catalog so it is interesting yeah. there is a kind of a, a generation now of i suppose label managers who know how to do it will say look let's split it 50 50 but you know we'd love to just help you for the next album and most I artists 
have most artists like I'd love to do it but I really don't want to do all this work myself I just want to make the music but let someone else do it so I just wondered if that's going to be the case for you yeah well I'm trying to find the balance because I've had lots of conversations recently um I put out a thing on Facebook just showing some of the old um tapes that I found in storage and like the half inch tapes and multi-tracks and stuff and I said does anyone fancy like looking after these giving them a bit of love putting them out again and I've had a lot of people contact me say, from, from people who will clean them up, bake them, bake transferred. Them. <laughs> you, know, you have to bake the tapes, don't you? Yes, you know, yes, I've heard about the baking. Some people who will do box sets and, you know, all this kind of stuff, T-shirts. And it's like, wow, that's really amazing. So I'm trying to find a balance between playing live, doing new recordings, and then looking after the heritage stuff yes. at the same time and finding different homes for the different things, really. Um, so that's going really quite well. So next year should be really interesting. It should be nice. Some nice so reviews. is it the case that you now own all the, the catalogue and yes. Alex, and then you'll just want to get somebody to say, look, can we have the a vinyl box set, you know, CD, you know, everything, just have it nicely archived? Yeah, that's it. Basically, there you yeah. go. And I'm sort of going forward. Is it mostly now you and Maggie, your sister, and potentially Andy on guitar? So Andy's moved north of England, um, so it's not it's not feasible anymore. We can't really work together. Um, but he may he may come back some little bits and pieces. I think the core will be me and Maggie, and um, the uh, additional to that there will be kind of remixes. I've spoken to some remixes already for original for some of the earlier tracks, um, and. I, you know, I will collaborate and all like you heard, there's, there's quite a lot of people out there that I think um, that I know are interested in doing little collaborations. So I'll probably just bring featured artists in from time to time. I would imagine loads of people are going to want to be on your next album, aren't they? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it's a lovely thought. It's a lovely thought. I mean, I've got a few people in mind that I would use for various things, like whether it be a bass player or a vocalist or something. Um, but so we'll have see. you built your own studio at home? Oh, I don't really have a studio as such. I mean, this I is have, it. A living room. I have room. like a keyboard, a little mixer, some little gadgets. I've got my big old speakers. There you go. Um, I've got my guitars. So, so yeah, I'm, basically I'm in the front room. I only moved here a little while ago and it's quite a small house. And um, I just I just um, took over the front room and turned it into a studio. So I rehearse in here and I write in here. And is it does it come as easily now as it did back in the eighties? The ideas, yeah, yeah. I don't think that changes really. I mean, yeah. I, I, well, no, it's, big, it's, a, it's a it's a big area, isn't it? Creativity. Creative. Well, bizarrely, there's a few people who've. I don't know if you ever came across a guy called Nick Evans, who was part of you know various record labels in the late eighties and early nineties. But he's got a whole thing on creativity and his soul, and also the guy from Bid from the Monochrome set said he's writing a book on creativity and the whole theories he's got behind it, which it sounded fascinating. So yes, creativity. Yeah. Where does it come from? Do you yeah. ever lose it? Uh, yes, you do, um, or you lose the ability to express or maybe you don't have anything to express, but I think that it was interesting for me because when I wasn't doing music, I started painting. And I think that you see that in a lot of musicians, if they stop doing one creative outlet, they find another one which is more conducive to their environment. So I started drawing and painting. And what, what I found with, it's easier to get my head around creativity through 
the plastic arts in that you can see a clear progression in a really short period of time yes of where you're going and the kind of aesthetic which is guiding you and the removal of like artifice and getting closer more and more to towards something i think musically you do that as well but i think with me and i can't really speak for anybody else in terms of musical creativity there has to be there has to be a certain minimal minimum level of like something around me like a base if you like um things have to be sorted to a certain extent yeah if, if i can't pay the bills it's harder to do write a song unless you're writing a song about i'm being unable to pay the bills um you know um so there's a certain baseline that i have to get to where family's okay and i feel a bit okay and it might be a luxury um but you know some people work better under extreme stress it's no. a bit, un I think it's kind of, I think when you're younger, you might be able to deal with that level of potential poverty and desperation. But I think as you get older, it's harder. Yeah, I mean, when, when we started ARK and I had no heating, I had broken windows, I was in a semi-squat. Yes. You know, and, and I had no money for food. And I quite often I didn't eat for a couple of days. Um, you know, so, so there is that. But I had a lot of dreams and a lot of energy and those things didn't bother me so much i was immortal as we all are when we're young um nowadays i'm just like i'm lucky to be able to have a room like this whereby you know i can switch it all on and then just get into it you know and, and but in terms of the actual technique you have to have, you have to have technique you have to, yes you have to have the skills to do that and you know over the years i've developed those skills but in terms of the actual desire to write something and to, and to reflect on the thing is this good is this bad that discrimination I don't think that I think every individual has that to a great or lesser extent I think if you're going to be a musician you have to be able to discriminate between what's useful what's not and when it's finished probably <laughs> yes have, have we finished this song yet did you ever have problems with that because I know speaking to a few people it's like they go god I really wish we could have just moved on a bit quicker once we'd done what we needed to rather than just go no let's go back and sort of fiddle around a bit more with it and it's like that kind of energy kind of gets a bit sort of uh, i don't know it it, it it doesn't flow so much it's a bit yeah, like i think we've got we, we've, yeah it's kind of we've got the idea we could spend another year but it's not really going to change that much and actually we need to then move on as a creative person whereas it's like christ we're we still working on this song which is it's starting to sound worse than it did a year ago yeah i think it's um yeah it's interesting i remember seeing some jackson uh, jackson pollock documentary and towards the end his action paintings as they were called they were just like monochrome and they were done in seconds and they had as much power you know and i think it's like you know it's like we were doing a show last saturday and the saturday before i put on a, a drum groove and i said maggie should we try a song over this drum groove and we tried it and in one take the rehearsal I, I just sung it i said just follow me every time i do a line copy it and she did it and at the end of it it's like right that's on the set <laughs> you know and it's like just it's just to to not really care so much but to care in a different kind of way to not be precious about it I do think things, a lot of musicians I know, they will spend months and months working on a new release. Seriously, you should have done it in one weekend. And if, if someone put a gun against your head and said, do it in one weekend, you would. Yeah. You could. You know, if someone said to me, I want an album a week from now, they'll get 10 songs if my life depended on it. And I think sometimes we just have to behave as if it does. 
Well, I think the David Bowie Black Star album probably had that kind of urgency that is like, it's quite ambitious. It's quite like, wow, that must have been incredible. But you must have also known you were needed to finish it before you were going to die. So you needed yeah. to, to keep on with it. It's like you've got the idea. Let's just get to the next idea. I, st- I still have yet to listen to that whole album. <laughs> it's a very, it's a tricky album at times but it's interesting with that painting thing because I always remember I think it was Joni Mitchell was next to some famous artist all was talking about this guy who I can't remember what his name was actually but he was very famous and he sort of done his little drawing and someone said god that's an incredible masterpiece you did that in I don't know five minutes he said, no that was 50 years that was yeah, 50, yeah that's not yeah. just five minutes that's my whole life that it's been you know put into this little piece of this scribble yeah. it's not Picasso used to draw but it. But that's the one. Sketches. It's Picasso. <laughs> you know, drew, drew, is it Lupo, his little dog? And, you know, things like that. Just do a quick sketch. Boom. There you go. But it's it's more than just five minutes. It was like, you know, yeah. all I that think, I think, yeah, I mean, without trying to sound arrogant, I think if you've been working in music for almost 40 years, um, you ought to have some skills which are just like there. You know, you don't, you don't think about riding a bike once you've learned to ride it. You just get on and do it. And I think that um, cutting, cutting to the chase is really, really important. I think nowadays. I mean, well, I, I, suppose... I, I have less energy and less time. Yeah, and also when you when you look at the '60s work, you know those bands were bringing out an album a year, doing a tour. And David Bowie in the '70s did ten albums in ten in ten years, did world tours, relocated, got married got divorced you know I mean he and starred in various films so there was an urgency there wasn't there there wasn't that kind of shall we just do that again it's like no I'm just going to be I'm doing soul in Philly here's the thing the DIY the whole DIY evolved through technology that was the next stage wasn't it you can get a sampler you don't need a band you can sample something else and and, you know you can develop all your stuff until the technology took over and now I see I mean my son's a producer not to be critical of him he produces really nice music but he's enough labour it, because you know, he's got because because he's got his computer and his software and it's all inside there, and so he can work it and work it and work it and work it. I mean, so so he puts a lot of time into that tiny little sound that's on the third bar, and this that and the other. It's like whereas we never had that luxury. No. Um, so so we worked quicker, but it's different strokes, isn't it? Really. But it's that it's that kind of wow. That is a song that's going to be that's got something else. It's the as the trog said in the studio. You know, it's the the fairy dust, isn't it? The magic fairy dust on the production. But if yeah. the song isn't there, it's like no, that just well, that's happen. that's a whole different area, isn't it? Is it songs? Is it music? I mean, I I I kind of I had this dream that I will one day build this um, kind of machine, and it's like um, an algorithm basically, and so it has four main feeds and and their music so there's the lyric the rhythmic the sonic and the melodic and that's that all songs are made up of different elements to a large extent of that and then within those there's you know if you're going to push the rhythmic up as a slider you're moving more into like rhythm dance if you're going to push the lyric up you might be going into bob dylan territory or rap yes. if you're going to push the sonic up you're moving to ar kane space to that sounds and noise and then you know melodic you might be looking at bark even but then you've got put you take that algorithm you feed that in you feed that through genre through era through attitude through politics and you can come up with almost any type of music as just basically moving sliders and knobs and i think that that's 
that's very much how, so what is a song it's really it's it's almost not to criticize it but what is a song you know almost like the wrong question it's like what what are the component parts of this piece of music that you're creating yes where's the emphasis and you know, so Tubular Bells isn't a song as such, but it's an amazing piece of music. It's more like classical, isn't it? It's more about melody and rhythm. You know, so those sliders have been pushed up really, really high, but there's no lyrics. Yeah. Zero. You know, and I, I, sometimes I think about it like that, but I, I am very much, I sit down with an acoustic guitar and I write a song. And that's, that's the root of nearly everything that I do. So I understand it that because that's what hooked me in. It's like going back to where we started when we were kids in the 70s, it was all songs. They're all beautiful pop songs. And I still, like, on a sun, sunny Sunday afternoon when I'm cooking, I might put on, like, a 70s playlist or something because those, all those songs hook you right back into a certain vibe. Yes. You know, but there, there is songwriting and there's music created and they, they cross over, but not necessarily the same thing. It's a tricky one, though, isn't it? I mean, if you could have just said something to your, like, a 16-year-old self starting out, is there anything that you'd have just kind of wanted to whisper in their ear, even if that get, person... Get a lawyer... Get along. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably it would have been it would have been you know I know starting out in terms of music, and um, it's difficult to to respond to that without being cynical or humorous. Yes, fantastic, isn't it? But um, no. I don't know. I don't uh, musically. I wouldn't change anything really. Um, pretty pretty happy with. Yes. Well, it does sound brilliant. Well, I'm really excited that you've got projects for next year. This has been fantastic. So there you go. Yeah, but I'm look, glad we managed to catch up eventually. Yes, I know. I, I didn't I, have I, anything to talk about before, but now no. I'm doing new things. It's like I try not to do press or anything like that if there's nothing really to talk about that's new. No. But anyway, this is brilliant. Well, thank you ever so much. I'll let you rock on. But yes, this worked brilliantly. And and if you want, I can always send you the link and then you could always use it on one of your social media platform sites. Brilliant. If you want. Anyway, <laughs> but look, <laughs> thanks a lot. And have a really, really lovely day. Try and keep cool. Okay. Take care, David. Keep keep the curtains closed. That's our tip. Uh, yeah, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> okay. And Bye-bye. close it. So, see you. Bye. Bye. And that, dear listener, is how you end a conversation. Well, not really, but anyway, it um, keeps me amused. A massive thank you to Rudy Tambala to give me the time for that interview. I'm so grateful. Yes, AR Kane, check it out. Um, check them out. I do believe you can find them on um, or him on Facebook. Also on, you know, just Google, you'll find something about them and the website as well. Anyway, this is the C86 show. I'm David E. So if you want to contact me, for some nice reason, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Also, these have all been archived, aren't you, lucky? You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. It's true. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe.